Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming out. Uh, my name is John Handler. I'm a principal solutions architect uh, with AWS, and I focus on our search services. I'll be joined today by uh, Andy and AJ from NBC Sports Engine. Uh, we got a great session for you. We have uh, first half, we're going to talk about uh, some best practices and, and things that you can do to optimize your usage of Amazon Elasticsearch service. Uh, second half, AJ and Andy have a great story about how they got to the optimal multi-tenant uh, solution and uh, great, touching on a lot of cool stuff. So we will roll right in and get started. So if you are not familiar with Elasticsearch, uh, Elasticsearch sits in the databases world um, fundamentally because it's the kind of thing where I send my data in there and I run queries to get uh, results out of it. Elasticsearch is a tremendously, tremendously popular piece of software. Uh, you can see this is from DB Engines. This is the ranking of database software. Elasticsearch sitting at number eight along with much larger things like Oracle, MySQL, Postgres, all of those. Uh, so tremendously, tremendously popular. Fundamentally because it's fairly simple to deploy it. It's fairly easy to get data into it, and once you have data in there, it's fairly easy to get value out of it. Um, and so uh, Elasticsearch really <laughs> tremendously popular, growing in popularity. Uh, as we look at it, there are two fundamental ways that you use Elasticsearch. Uh, Elasticsearch is a search engine, so it supports text-based search, uh, free text search over natural language kind of text. You use it in conjunction with your application uh, to provide search for your customers, say in an e-commerce kind of scenario, uh, over the data in, say, your CRM system. Uh, Elasticsearch allows you to put all that data in and then run queries on that data to pull out relevant results. And what happened is Elasticsearch came out in 2009, and you saw a lot of uh, system administrators running large deployments of servers, generating tons and tons of log data, and something would go wrong, and then they'd have to figure out, okay, well, what went wrong? Well, do I really, at three in the morning when everything is melting down, want to log into 10,000 servers and try to grep the logs for exactly what's wrong? No, of course I don't. So instead, I can flow all that log data into a search engine, and then I can just run a quick search, figure out what the error is, and solve it. So sending my log data into Elasticsearch really provided a good way for me to, not, to figure out what was going wrong. And Elasticsearch grew a, an open source ecosystem to support that. So a uh, technology called Logstash, which brings data from point A to point B, basically log data from your servers into Elasticsearch. And then Kibana, a thin web client that used the data in Elasticsearch to build visualizations. So we have those two use cases. We have full text search, we have log analytics. Uh, we see tons and tons of customers doing both of those things. And if we look at it sort of schematically, uh, just a quick sort of a architecture view, um, you're taking data from your servers, from your application, from your networking, from your AWS infrastructure, and you send that data into Elasticsearch service, a number of different ways. Uh, or perhaps you have a relational database uh, usually your application is backed by some kind of database, so you're taking data, your application data itself, pushing it into Elasticsearch as JSON. Elasticsearch then indexes that data and provides searchability across it, and at the other end, you send queries to pull out the results. Fairly straightforward. Now what we find is that as you scale Elasticsearch up, 
it becomes more and more difficult to size correctly, to maintain, uh, to do the operational work of keeping that cluster running. So we came out with Amazon Elasticsearch Service as a managed service that makes it easy for you to run Elasticsearch in the AWS cloud. Just a couple of the things that we provide. Um, number one, you can use all of the open source tools that you're already using if you're already using Elasticsearch uh, with Amazon Elasticsearch Service. You can easily deploy Elasticsearch. Elasticsearch is a clustered distributed algorithm. It takes a number of different instances. Um, you could set that up on your own, but with the service, it's a single API call. Uh, you tell us what to deploy and we deploy it. You can scale your cluster as well, so you're not locked into a particular cluster deployment. Uh, we provide an API that allows you to tell us, I want more instances, I want different instances, I want different storage. We seamlessly in the back end then bring in new instances, migrate data across, and do all of that while your search application is still up and running. You can also secure uh, your Elasticsearch service domain. Uh, we provide a number of different integrations that make that uh, easier to do. So you can use uh, VPC, you can launch your Elasticsearch service domain in a VPC. You can use IAM for fine-grained access control, and you can use Cognito for a login experience with Kibana. You can make your uh, Elasticsearch cluster more highly available. Uh, we have a multi-AZ checkbox, basically. It makes it really simple just to say, yeah, spread my data and nodes across um, availability zones. And finally, you can use other AWS services that are integrated with Elasticsearch Service to get your data into Elasticsearch Service. Um, amongst them, you can use Kinesis Data Firehose to send data to Elasticsearch. You can send data from CloudWatch Logs to Elasticsearch. Uh, you can use Database Migration Service to migrate data from your database to Elasticsearch Service, uh, amongst others. On the other end, we provide integration with CloudWatch. We send cluster metrics to CloudWatch so you can monitor what's going on with your cluster and you can make decisions about scale and sizing. So that's my high-level overview of Elasticsearch, if you don't know what it is. Um, we're gonna dive in now and we have three topics that we're gonna cover. The first of those is we're gonna look at optimization for cost and performance. Then I'm gonna recommend to you to use i3 instances where you can. And then I'm gonna talk about the refresh interval, what it is and how it helps you. So as we look at sizing, sizing is a, a perennial topic for me. I talk to lots and lots and lots of customers. Uh, most customers need a little help thinking about sizing and figuring out how to get to the right size. And it's really important to size correctly. Sizing correctly will improve your performance and also will reduce your cost. So that's what we're gonna use to, to dive in and figure out um, how to optimize. So there are two dimensions that Amazon Elasticsearch uh, charges on, actually there are three, but the main two are instance hours for the distributed cluster that we're running. If you choose to use EBS for your storage, then we charge for storage as well. The one that's not on the slide is data transfer. Uh, we also charge data transfer out. The things that drive that are, uh, there are a couple of things that drive that. Number one, as you're pushing data into Elasticsearch service, Elasticsearch is creating indexes that get stored on disk, and so the amount of data that you push in controls how much disk you need to deploy. Uh, and then, on top of that, as you're sending updates and queries to Elasticsearch, there's a processing requirement, CPU requirement, so 
the kind and quantity of traffic that you send in also drives the number of instances that you choose. We'll talk a lot about tenancy, and AJ and Andy will really get deep into tenancy. Uh, tenancy can also drive your uh, usage higher, so handling tenancy correctly is important. And your mapping, which is the schema that you give to Elasticsearch to tell it how to index your data, controls, to some extent, the size of your indexes. So again, that's a storage component, and we'll dive into that. Before we do, let's uh, have a quick look at how Elasticsearch handles data. As I mentioned, it's a clustered distributed algorithm, so we have a number of instances. When I'm pushing data into Elasticsearch, I specify an index that will hold that data. That's a, a construct that is across the full data set. Now, the actual documents are indexed into what we call shards. Um, we specify the number of shards when we create the index, and Elasticsearch distributes the data uh, by default randomly across that set of shards. Um, the shards, then, uh, can either be primary, so we always have a primary shard, but then we can also add a dynamic number of replica shards uh, that are copies of the primaries. You use replica shards the for the first one for redundancy, and then for additional copies, usually for search throughput. But it's a reasonable expectation that you'll have one primary and one replica of each shard. The shards are really important because they are the things that do the compute and do the storage. So as you look at scaling and sizing, how the shards are mapped onto the instances is what controls how you're using your resources. Excuse me. So um, storage is actually a fairly straightforward way to look at uh, the, the sizing needs. I have a magic formula here. Uh, it's not right for you, probably but it is directional, so we can look at the components of it and understand them. Uh, the first thing is we have an index that's gonna be on disk that is probably larger than the amount of source data. It depends on a bunch of things that we're gonna see. So that first 1.1 there says, okay, well give me a, an assumed 10% inflation. Then each replica is an additional copy of the data. If I have one primary, one replica, I need twice, I need to multiply by two. Um, in most situations for log analytics, you'll retain some number of days of data. So if I, my data source is per day, then I multiply by the number of days that I want to keep. And then I add a 15% overhead that prevents me from hitting some of the watermarks in Elasticsearch that cause it to stop uh, indexing data. So one of the key places that you can intervene to reduce the amount of storage that you need is looking at your source. Fundamentally, you only want to put into Elasticsearch what you want to search or what you want to visualize. So if you can strip out unwanted or unused data, you'll have a direct effect on how much storage you need, which will, will directly affect your bottom line and also your performance. So only, only send what you intend to search. I did some testing to kind of prove out this point. I have three data sets. The first of those is BoardGameGeek. Uh, I am a BoardGameGeek, so I used that one. The uh, second one of those is the jargon file. If you haven't heard of the jargon file, jargon file uh, was running around MIT in the 60s and 70s. This is a hacker dictionary. Uh, it's just word definition. So this is a full text uh, example. The Board Game Geek is a uh, mixed metadata and text. And then the third one I used was uh, Apache Weblogs, public data set from NASA. Then I have a couple of different conditions. Uh, I used Logstash's default template. 
And I, in later versions of Logstash, they've been doing a job of optimizing uh, how it stores stuff. And they turn on best compression by default. So for comparison, I said, okay, well, let's turn off the best compression. And then I removed at message. So Logstash, when it sends your log data in, includes the original log line in the actual JSON that it sends. That original log line has a huge impact on how much is stored. So I turned off the message field to see what would happen. In the green section, I also tested uh, with a hand-coded uh, mapping. I removed the message, and then I took a cut at the smallest possible by disabling a couple of features uh, and to see what kind of storage I would get. So let's look at what happens when I remove the message field. I have my three data sets. The orange is NASA. The blue is BoardGameGeek. Uh, the gray is Jargon. Jargon is tiny, so I multiplied by 100. It means the absolute value is wrong, but the relative values are correct. Um, if I look at the left, that is removing the message field. The center is what you get with Logstash out of the box. So if you look at the NASA, and this is the, the logging use case, if you look at the NASA logs, I started at about 250 megabytes. Just turning off message, I got down to 50 megabytes. That's an 80% reduction. That's huge. Um, and if you do that again, 80% reduction in storage translates to 80% reduction in the amount of uh, instances I need to store, I need to spin up, and cost. Uh, second piece here that we can look at is this inflation percentage between your source data and the index size. And what's really controlling that is your mapping that you're setting and the features in your mapping that you're using. So um, source is the number one thing that you can control to reduce uh, size. Elasticsearch stores the source data of every line you pass in along with the indexes for that line. If you don't need the source data and what you use it for is to re-index, to do things like highlighting, a uh, number of things that generally in a log use case you wouldn't do. So you can disable source either globally or individually on fields, again, to reduce the amount of storage that you need. Logstash by default also defines for you a keyword field for every text field. So I'm sending in a text field. That's an analyzed field. Uh, it's one that I want to search word by word. So Logstash helpfully adds a keyword version, which is an exact match field. Well, if I don't actually need the text version or the keyword version, I can disable those and I'll save a bunch of space. Also, Elasticsearch computes some statistical values at indexing time that it keeps along with the fields to, uh, to do scoring. Those are called norms. If you dis those norms are actually fairly large. You can disable those norms, uh, to, again, to reduce sizing. So if I look at the effects of that, on the left, Again, I have my three data sets here. Orange is NASA, blue is BoardGameGeek, and gray is Jargon. On the left, I have the original source data size. And then I have a baseline, which is my hand-coded uh, mapping that I used with all of the features enabled. So that's what you would get sort of out of the box. I enabled best compression. I did it with no source data. I did it with a message disabled. And then I did a smallest, which is not even indexed. That's everything shut off, totally useless, but interesting as that's as small as you can go. If you look at the board game geek here, um, that is the mixed metadata uh, full text use case. And simply by turning off the source, I go from 260,000 
to approximately 90,000. So again, disabling source provides you a like 50, 60% reduction possibly in the amount of data that you're storing. Uh, you can do that either globally or per field. And so that's a great way to reduce the amount of uh, storage you used. Also, you can see best compression is a good one to turn on. That, that buys me quite a bit. Um, and disabling the message, as we already knew. So to wrap this kind of section, um, you can remove the message field. This is how you do it. You put it in your mapping. You say at message, enabled false. Uh, you can disable source. To disable it globally, you say in the mapping, source enabled false. Uh, to disable it for particular fields, you can use this source include exclude. And finally, enable best compression. So in your settings for your index, use codec best compression. Okay, so that's how we deal with optimizing storage. Now we'll talk a little bit about optimizing compute. And we have to handle our two different workloads a little bit differently. So again, recap, they have, there are two different kinds of uh, workloads I have. I have a full text workload or I have a logs workload. In the full text case, I usually have one index that's holding my data, right? That's all my product catalog, that's whatever. For streaming logs, we usually have one index, which is today's index, which is receiving tons of updates. Then we have a long tail of indexes that hold yesterday, the day before, the day before, right? So what I would encourage you to think about is, in both cases, we have one index that's primarily active. The old logs indexes receive some traffic, but not a ton. So uh, squinting our eyes, we can kind of ignore a little bit those older indexes, and when we think about sizing, we can think about what's active right now. As I said, the shards get then distributed across the instances in the cluster. Uh, if we have our streaming case, uh, here we have three primaries, three replicas, seven days. Those are distributed across four nodes. In the search, we have one primary and three replicas distributed across six nodes. Um, as I send updates into the clusters, so for the logs use case, again, I have that one active index. Uh, my, my request is processed by the primaries, passed to the replicas. So I have essentially six processes that need to run to index that data. In the uh, search use case, I send to the primaries, uh, then the primaries are gonna send to the replicas. The high level point here is there's a multiplicative factor. One request generates CPU usage that's n times as big, right? For queries, uh, I send in a query and it hits one of all of the shards in the index. So uh, in the logs use case, I'm gonna hit uh, some number of primaries, uh, could be some number of replicas. It's N again, but it's not as big. And same thing for the search use case. So one important point, as you're scaling and sizing it, those requests are running in shards that need CPUs. So if you look at the distribution of shards to nodes and compare with how many CPUs you have, you can get a starting point for how to scale uh, your cluster. And the active shards to CPU ratio should be less than about one. Your mileage will certainly vary from this, but again, this is a good starting point. Um, it needs to be less than one because there are other tasks that run on the cluster, so you can't fill up all the CPUs 100%. Right? 
Second point, um, your total shards in your cluster should be less than, uh, well, 25 per gigabyte of JVM. What we see usually is that customers who have less than 1,000 shards do well. Customers with more than 1,000 shards tend to get into a yellow area. Customers with more than 20 or so thousand shards, uh, those clusters are not often successful. So keeping your overall shard count down and your shard to CPU ratio in line uh, are important for your performance. Just to uh, let you know how to set the shard count, you set the shard count when you create the index, and it's, you can change it, it's somewhat difficult. Uh, so you can directly create an index with the left hand, uh, with the left hand rest call, uh, and you just say index number of shards five, uh, number of replicas zero. You can also put other settings and mappings and all sorts of stuff can go in there. The better way to do it, especially for log analytics use case, is to set a template. Elasticsearch lets you uh, set templates where settings are applied to any index created that matches the, the wildcard in that template. So in this case, template star means match every new index that's created, and then with your settings, I'm gonna set my number of shards and number of replicas, um, and then every new index, I get that. This is particularly good for log analytics because if you're sending uh, data in and your data volume is growing, then uh, you can just change your template. Tomorrow's index will have more shards, right? And you wanna, again, look at storage for how many shards to set. Um, that's your baseline. So we would like to see shards that are 50 gigabytes or smaller. If I have a terabyte of index, I would like to see, oh geez, I can't do the math, 20 shards. Um, just divide by 50, that should be your primary shard count. So we're gonna talk a little bit about i3 instances in terms of cost and performance. Um, in the service, we support a number of different instance types. Um, we have, i3s are, are effective in terms of price performance uh, ratios. So what I've done here is I've taken the total monthly cost of the instance, I've added in an EBS cost if it's an EBS instance, and I've assumed that the maximum size EBS volume is deployed. That gives me a total monthly cost, and I can divide by that to get a price per gigabyte per month of that particular instance type. And what I'd highlight here is we have M4 and R4 are less costly, 28, uh, 32, and 35 cents, but the I3s are right behind them uh, in terms of their price per gigabyte, 39 cents. Given that I, the I3s have NVMe storage, and you're not using EBS, so you'll get better performance out of them, their price per gigabyte is very competitive, and we do think these are the best instances given what we support right now. However, at the low end, the I3s can be more expensive. And we like to say it's about three terabytes. So if you're less than three terabytes, you can use the M4s and R4s with smaller EBS volumes to get a, a lower overall cost. But as soon as you start to hit that five terabyte, terabyte line, you'll see the I3 instances come in, and that's where they become price performance effective. Of course, if you need the extra performance of the NVMe SSD, then of course the I3s make sense at any scale. Quick question, do you need PyOps? Uh, short answer, no. And we'll talk about, uh, AJ and Andy will we'll really touch on uh, some of these, these points. Um, 
with EBS, you get three IOPS uh, per gigabyte uh, deployed volume. Elasticsearch does not drive the disk particularly hard. Um, so that tends to be enough, unless you're in a highly multi-tenant situation and you have a ton of concurrency, then you're driving more uh, disk that way. So generally speaking, look at your CloudWatch metrics and you'll see how, much, how many IOPS you're using and dollars to donuts, unless you're in one of these highly multi-tenant situations, uh, you won't need PIOPS. Uh, let's talk about refresh interval. So refresh interval can buy you additional indexing capacity. Uh, it depends on your workload, of course, but 50%, 60%, those are not unreasonable expectations of additional capacity, which means you need 50% less hardware. So what is refresh interval? Well, as documents are coming into Elasticsearch for indexing, they are, uh, they are passed to Lucene. Lucene is a Java library that creates indexes. Um, they go to Lucene, which indexes them and creates a RAM version of the index. That's called a segment. Every refresh interval, that segment is written to disk. When you get enough segments, Lucene merges them down into a smaller set of larger segments. Um, so the more I'm doing refresh, the more segments I'm creating, the more I'm spending time merging those segments together. And the merging of the segments takes CPU away from indexing. So by increasing my refresh interval, I hold the data in RAM longer, don't flush it to disk, and then I have less work to do down the line. Um, so this is, this is actually, again, a 50% potentially of additional capacity that you can gain by pushing your refresh interval to 30 seconds or 60 seconds. The flip side is then that data is not available for search or visualization. So it adds latency into your update chain. So that's the trade-off that you make. If you push it up a little bit, you'll get additional capacity at a not-so-bad latency trade-off. So you can set your refresh interval uh, in much of the same way that you set your shard count. Uh, you set your refresh interval if, at index creation uh, by putting it into the settings. And also, you can put it in your template uh, so that it gets automatically applied. Important point, you can dynamically change your refresh interval. Um, so if you set it to like one second, you can also uh, increase or decrease it dynamically by sending this API call, which comes in handy if you have a large data load. Uh, you can actually set your refresh interval negative one to turn it off, and then everything is just indexed in RAM. Uh, send your number of replicas down to zero, and then you can dump a ton of data on the cluster and once everything stabilizes, you can push your refresh interval back up and start sending updates. So if you have a data load, that's a, a performant way to do it. One last little tidbit to share. Um, we do charge for data transfer out, as I mentioned. When you post to the bulk API, Elasticsearch helpfully responds with an enormous uh, response that has the status of each of the indexing. Uh, each of the documents that it tried to index. Uh, that's great, but it can get very costly to transfer all that data out of Elasticsearch. You can disable that by using the filter path parameter. Filter path is available at a global level. You can use it for any API call to filter in or out pieces of the, uh, the response. So if you remove the items from your filter path, you get a response that looks like the one on the bottom. How long did it take and how many errors did it have? 
Uh, that's 99% smaller than what you would have gotten if you got a line-by-line -line report. You lose the fidelity, though. So it's a trade-off here. Um, then you don't know for a fact which things failed if things failed in your indexing. So if you're pushing log data in and, and you're more cost conscious, you can disable this. That'll buy you some uh, cost at the, at the cost of a little bit of fidelity in knowing what's happening. So a little bit of a mini wrap. Um, we talked about three things. We talked about how to optimize your storage, uh, just a few things that you can set, fairly easy to do, that will buy you a ton of additional, uh, additional storage. Uh, we recommended the i3 instances as the best kind of cost performance, except at a smaller scale. And then we talked about increasing refresh interval to add additional indexing capacity to your cluster. So I'm gonna turn it over to AJ and Andy, and uh, thanks very much. All right, everybody can hear me now, good. Um, okay, so uh, we're from Sports Engine. Uh, my name is Andy Fleener. I'm the Senior Platform Operations Manager at Sports Engine. Um, I lead a team that's tasked with keeping our platform up and running, um, and I'm here with my coworker. Hi, everyone. My name's AJ Stevenberg. I am the lead software engineer for the member management product, which you're gonna hear about here in a little bit. Uh, for the purposes of the postmortems you're about to hear about, consider me a contributing condition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's interesting, the first time that, that AJ and I actually met John, we were on a conference call with him where we were sort of describing this use case that we're about to uh, explain to you all, um, and he said, congratulations, you have the worst use case for Elasticsearch. Uh, so that's just a sign of things to come. Um, so a little bit about Sports Engine. Um, sports Engine is a youth sports uh, technology organization um, that, that basically services all, as many of most of the youth sports organizations uh, throughout um, the U.S., um, so we, we deal with like Little League Baseball, hockey, um, all kinds of, all, any sport you can think of. Um, we've been on a bit of a, an acquisition spree, so over the last three years, we've acquired 12 companies, um, lots of companies in sport verticals, um, as well as background screenings, so we care a lot about keeping kids safe. Um, and so the other thing is we actually got acquired by NBC Sports. Um, and so we've gone from a startup when I started of 70 people uh, to now we have uh, 450 employees um, th throughout the US and also in Canada. Um, so what do we do? We service thousands of organizations, millions of athletes. We're 100% on AWS. Um, so we have 60 distinct services throughout our platform, uh, 650 plus uh, AWS instances. Um, and we, we have 20 different AWS accounts, so a little bit of that, when you acquire 12 companies, you start to get uh, uh, acquiring extra AWS accounts uh, is another fun, fun thing that we deal with. Um, so what we're gonna talk about today is, is sort of the challenges that we ran into as we, as we started to build out this use case. So this use case is, um, so we collect, um, we, we do registrations as one of our primary products that we offer. So registration for um, signing up for Little League or, or, or uh, youth hockey or whatever it is. Um, and so when, we, when you sign up for it, those organizations um, that we service, our customers, um, their goal is, is really to um, you know, understand all the people that are signing up. And they want to understand them from a, like, almost like a CRM level, right? Um, they're really trying to figure out how to reach out to new parents to, to understand um, how they can you know, get more people signed up and, and playing youth sports. Um, and so the key challenges we had were around so tenancy, right? So uh, one organization 
only cares about all of the data for that organization. They don't care about anyone else's organization. Um, and so we went through multiple iterations of figuring out how to do this tenancy model um, with Elasticsearch. Um, the other thing we're gonna talk about is what happens when you dynamically map fields um, with a never-ending amount of fields that can be created. So this registration product, uh, we basically allow our customers to create questions to ask their, the, the people registering for their um, programs, like whatever they wanna ask them, right? T-shirt size, um, anything. Um, uh, you know, health, even, even like health information, um, understanding if they got physicals and all that stuff. Um, and then the other thing that was really important to us is we wanted to ensure that our customers could continue to search that information um, all the time. Um, so we had, zero, we, had to, we had a zero downtime re-indexing requirement that we wanted to build. Um. So as the administrator of a youth sports organization, I'm running my organization more and more like a business every day. I need to understand this any said churn. I need to see new people who signed up, reach out to new hockey parents, people that may be new to gymnastics and might need a little extra help. Um, and, and I'm fundamentally rallying around the idea of how can I organize thousands of athletes? When you go all the way to even like an NGB level or a national governing body level, they're managing the play of tens of thousands of athletes and they need to understand all of the people that are registering. So as Andy mentioned, we have a registration product where we're ingesting massive amounts of data. Uh, every season, an organization may have two or three of these as they're collecting information for tryouts, for traveling teams, or for tournament interest. Uh, but we need a way to surface, the, surface this in a way that makes sense. Um, so before we dive in and tell you the architecture, what I'm gonna do is show you a little bit about the product itself. So uh, as an administrator of Edina Hockey Association, when I log into my sports engine headquarters, this is the view that I get. You can see right away that I've got uh, a big filter button on the top, it's a whole table and it shows uh, initially by default, first name, last name, and email address. So a really common use case that we had to solve with this was, who registered uh, last year who hasn't signed up yet, right? Who, who might be at risk of churning? Um, so what, I, what I'll do here is I'll set up a filter that uh, does exactly this. So I can filter across registration sessions, which is a new thing in this product that Elasticsearch allowed us to do. So I can say, okay, from last year's session, who signed up? And then who hasn't signed up yet this year? So this product, uh, there, this platform that we've built out on top of Elasticsearch uh, has a lot of other product verticals on top of it, including uh, messaging, a payment app feature, uh, that allows you to collect payments from parents for things like tournaments and travel. Uh, it has rostering tools which let, let me assign players and all this other stuff. Um, but just filtering and searching and sorting isn't quite enough. Um, what I've done here is add two additional columns from completely different registrations. So if I am a, a, the administrator of Edina Hockey, what I wanna know right now is, okay, who's new to hockey? Did this person sign up last year or not? This is a custom question that one of our administrators administrators added to their registration, and I can easily see here, okay, some said yes, some said no. I can target messaging to the people that said no or the people that said yes. Uh, I've also added another column from the new registration session, which is what, what uh, level of play did you play at? Are you boys bantam? Did you play girls mites? Uh, so I can maybe find people that are, that are new or find people that maybe are playing up this year, maybe a new level of competitiveness that requires extra touch points. So this is what the product does. Let's talk about how it's built. Yeah, so we try to figure out um, what our optimal tenancy model is, right? Um, I think you could probably imagine there's a handful of different ways that we could do this. Um, from having uh, you know, a single organization with its own cluster being the like, biggest hammer that you could drop, um, to you know, having an index per uh, organization 
um, to having uh, one index that all organizations use. Um, really what you need to have tenancy at its very root is just a key that is the tenancy, like the tenant ID, right? And so you could go as simple as that um, and be able to solve this problem that way. So then whenever you're doing the searching, um, all you're looking at is a specific organization. So to understand how we ended up on the right tenancy model, um, I wanted to give you an idea of our, our workload um, characteristics. So we have 20,000 organizations, um, and that number is continually, continuously growing. Um, we never need to search more than one organization at a time, um, so that's, that allows us to do things like you know, provide a tenant ID and only search for that tenant ID. Um, so really, it was, it was what, what are our decisions here about how we want to do this? So when the registration product first took off, what we had done was the kind of thing that every good startup does. Let's throw MySQL at it. So what we had initially was we would create, dynamically inside of RDS, create a brand new table for every registration session that was open, add a column for every question, and just blast answers into it. It actually worked really well, and it was our go-to solution for a pretty long time. But eventually, it just wasn't satisfying the needs of our customers. Uh, there was no real learning here. I couldn't look back on last year and see beyond counts, right, how many people signed up last year versus this year. So it'd be really hard to identify people that churned or people that have been lifelong members of my organization. Um, there's no shared context. The, the application we were looking at uh, earlier pulls data from all sorts of different data sources, including uh, people, teams, rosters, uh, sports, stats, all this other stuff. Uh, but in the, my registration session, all I have is what you wrote when you signed up. I don't get to see things like maybe your zip code if you didn't ask for it. Uh, so there's no shared context to understand this information. Uh, there's also, again, no history, and there's really just no way I can uh, make any really good business decisions on this data. So the first thing we thought of was, all right, let's use Elasticsearch. This should work, right? Um, we had already been using Elasticsearch for a back-end user search tool, so we had kind of followed the same pattern we had initially in our Ruby on Rails app. We'll use the active record pattern because that kind of comes naturally. We'll create one index. We'll call it organizations or tenants, and we're just going to put a tenant ID on every single document. In this case, a document represents a person uh, in this entire cluster. And that's great, right? No problem. We left Elasticsearch set at the default, which is just index everything I throw at it, add a new field for it, and we'll, we'll understand our data later, later. We really didn't have any plans for expansion at this point, and the product was really wrapped around how can I understand all of the people in my organization that maybe didn't get here through the registration product. Yeah, so uh, you know, at this point we already had that Elasticsearch cluster, so we were just using infrastructure we already had. Um, so from an operational standpoint, this was easy for us because all we needed to do was provision a new index and then we were good to go. Um, really got us off the ground quick um, and, and got us moving in the right direction. Um, why it failed epically um, is, is it's sort of impossible to re-index uh, one index effectively, right? So there's no way to do this without downtime um, just because of, of the, like, the application design, we were always focused on just using that specific index. So what we'd have to do to re-index is we'd have to take the whole thing down and then rebuild it again. Um, the mappings were effectively permanent, right? So like when you're using dynamic mappings, it's difficult for you to do anything, play with those mappings. Once they're in there, they're there. You can't do anything about it. Um, it's just very resistant to change. We didn't have very many options about how to experiment with this product and really build it out in a way that we wanted to be successful. Um, and so that, that's really the theme of, of, of this journey is like we, we had to figure out ways to, to find um, things that were, were changeable. Um, and really finding ways to, to affect only a small percentage or maybe in a single organization and be able to experiment on, on that organization to understand what the right way to do this was. Um, so eventually this sort of just fell over. 
Um, we had about 10 organizations, I think, before it fell over, which isn't very many. Um, the data was just constantly sinking, so there's a lot of data changing frequently. We have, um, you can imagine a large sports organization's got um, thousands of athletes, um, and during a busy registration season, so let's say it's, um, it's hockey season, and so we're in, in the month of September, everybody's trying to get their, their children enrolled in hockey. It's all happening at the same time, so we're getting lots and lots of rights all happening at the same time. Um, and so it was just too much data syncing against a single index um, because it, it, that, that data inserting was affecting everyone throughout that was involved in this sort of beta. Yeah, that was mostly uh, due to our usage of it. The active record pattern was regenerating the entire persona, persona document at the time of, of a change, which just wasn't an efficient way to write software. Um, but regardless, you know, we, we stepped up and we decided to tackle this, and my first thought was, well, if we can't make any changes when we have one index for everybody, let's put every single tenant in their own index. What could possibly go wrong here, right? Um, what we did was we decided since each organization's had different registration questions and we're running different registrations collecting different data from people, uh, that'll be easy because then we can just have one, uh, one tenant port per index with their own mapping. So as John touched on, the mapping is how Elasticsearch understands your data. It's the schema for your, your Elasticsearch data as it's being indexed. So this was an easy way for us to abstract that between our tenants, which was great. Uh, at this time, we also added support for multiple clusters. The goal here was like, let's just get this out fast. So money's cheap, time's expensive, let's roll this thing out the door. Um, we were using uh, Elasticsearch su supports this technology called index aliasing, which lets you uh, actually create one index alias and point to different indices and using their uh, update alias API to change between it. And that is what gave us the ability to do zero downtime reindexing, which I'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, that was the really big gain from this iteration. Um, and so at this point, we also added support for multiple clusters. So we added a second cluster. Um, this gives us even more options along with index aliasing. Uh, we actually had to build a business logic within our like, ap application about where that index lived and what was the name of that index and, and all that. So why did this fail epically? Um, I think from listening to John earlier, you probably understand that whenever you get upwards of uh, 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, 40,000 uh, shard, like shards, you start to have a problem. Um, in this case, uh, it was actually more about the number of indexes um, and the, the, the creating of indexes um, actually triggers cluster events. And cluster events are only processed by the master node. So, um, in Elasticsearch, I uh, highly recommend you have um, pro like dedicated master nodes, right? Um, in that situation, only one of them is actually doing work. Um, and so you have this resource constraint of the amount of CPU that you can get um, these sort of cluster events to complete is just limited to that one instance that you're running. Um, and so while the mappings were being updated and waiting on these cluster events to complete, you can't write any data to the data nodes that uh, are using that index. So it's basically just in this constant state of change that, that, allowed us, that, that did not allow us to continue to update data. Um, and so that was sort of a, uh, a significant problem. Major failure point, yeah. Let's take a little bit closer look on what this data looks like inside of Elasticsearch. Uh, on the left, what you're seeing is the persona document. In this case, it's my information. On the right is the mapping. That's the schema, again, how Elasticsearch understands your information. So my document has a, a subdocument called answers, which are all of these answers on a registration session. It's part of what's called a nested document. So I have a first name for this one was AJ, last name Stevenberg. there's my email, and uh, this kind of long, unintelligible string you see is the identifier of the question element that I answered. In this case, I had two decimal type questions, right? And I answered one 0 0.5 and another 1.0. So the mapping, the mapping file is understood as 
okay, so they have a first name question, I need to have a first name mapping. They have a last name question, okay, that's a string too. Email's also a string. This question element's a decimal, et cetera, et cetera. So for those of you who have followed along with our you know, explosion of mappings, you can see how if I add a new registration and say I ask 1,000 questions, suddenly I have 1,000 new mapping inserts to, to perform when I index this data. And eventually with our largest customer, customers, indexes were flying around with 100,000 fields, uh, which that amount of state to maintain for the entire cluster is what caused this huge number of cluster events and this explosion. So we had this idea, of course, like how can we prevent this from blowing up? Uh, on a phone call with John, he highly encouraged us to find a way to model our dynamic data in a way that is mapped statically. So we spent some time scratching our heads and thinking about it. And what we did was we reduced our mappings to the generic types of the questions we allowed customers to ask. Uh, this is a key understanding here. When I add a new question to a registration, instead of adding a new mapping, what I'm actually doing is adding a new part of a subdocument that includes the type of the question. Um, and, and that re resolves down to one of Elasticsearch's types. Um, then what we did was we would use an and query or a must match query to say, when I want to find the answer to a, this question from this person, what I'll do is I'll say, okay, it has to map the key for this specific question, which could be Q-U-E-L, one, two, three, four, five, or first name, and the value to that answer must be AJ, for example. Um, this allowed us to only use the insert mapping API to add new mappings when we were doing new development or working on new features, uh, and we were able to avoid dynamic mapping entirely. So let's take a look at what that actually looks like in our, in our cluster. Uh, at this point, you can see that the, the document is holding pairs of information, right? It, instead of having the, the field be the name of the question element and the value being the answer, what I have is a field named key, which is, you can see from the right, a keyword. As John explained, that must be matched entirely. We were doing that in our middleware layer in code. Uh, and then under that is the string value. So when a query would come in for find everyone whose document matches first name AJ, all we would do is split out the first name and go and find, okay, find any part of this document where the key is first name string, and we know that the string value then must be AJ, and then return that document if it matches. So as you see here for those two decimal, or the, the one decimal on this slide, uh, we only need one entry for decimal value in the mapping file, even though I might ask a decimal question 100 times on a registration. So every time a new question gets answered, we are no longer adding new mappings. What we're actually doing is just adding new documents to this nested document. Right, so we were pretty excited about this static mapping breakthrough. Um, we were fairly confident that this was gonna make a big impact. Um, and we were maybe a little too overconfident because as soon as the product manager heard that we thought we had solved all of our problems, they're like, great, let's roll it out everywhere. I think we had about 100 organizations uh, yeah, no, using, using the product at the time. And so we were you know, pretty excited to, to see what, what happens as we start to roll this out to more organizations. Um, and, and we felt pretty good. Um, so we did that. Uh, we did that, and then everything sort of fell apart. Um, so what's, what's going on in these graphs uh, here is, um, so the, the, the top right uh, graph over here is the, it's, it's the cluster health. Uh, so cluster health is uh, an important thing to, to monitor within Elasticsearch. Uh, when it's not green, that's bad. Um, so there's green, yellow, uh, which means that you have unassigned shards, um, and those shards need to move around and be 
uh, flush the disk. Um, when it's red, it means that you have fail charts. Fail charts are very bad. Um, that, that's a, there's a little blip there that you can see where we had some red shards um, and had to completely rebuild the index to get those shards working again. Um, the graph directly below that is the unassigned shards. So you'll, you'll notice that as the, as the cluster health changed to orange, uh, which is actually yellow, um, we, it was all of these unassigned shards. And these, these shards never got fully assigned throughout this whole process. They were just sitting in this unassigned state. Um, eventually they would write some of them and then we'd get more that would become un, uh, uh, unassigned. Um, the last, the last uh, graph there is the um, thread pool snapshot queue. Um, so we were trying to, to snapshot all of these indexes. Um, so index snapshotting is a useful tool. It allows you to uh, recreate an index uh, from an existing state, build it, put it into a new cluster, whatever you want to do with it. Um, and so there's automated snapshots that happen as part of the Amazon Elasticsearch service. It's very useful. You snapshot a cluster, turn it off, you can boot it back up again from a snapshot. It's pretty great. Um, but there's a bug in uh, Elasticsearch 5 um, that whenever you have uh, so many shards, um, snapshots can't complete effectively. Um, and so we had a snapshot that ran for over a day before it actually completed. Um, and so you'll see all of the pending tasks there. So those pending tasks are like assigning shards to nodes, um, basically. Um, as well as, so the, in, the, the snapshot was actually preventing those shards from getting assigned. Um, so that was fun. So why did it fail epically? It failed epically because we had 40,000 shards across two clusters. Uh, cost went through the roof. So the, the, the only solution when you're in this state effectively is to add as many nodes as you can um, to get enough uh, resources to, to, to get things under control. Um, so we said earlier that money is cheap and time is expensive. Money isn't that cheap. Um, and so you, you can't solve every problem with it. Um, and then that bug in ES5, uh, is, was a significant problem for us. It eventually, it eventually resolved and we were able to move on. So once again, back to the architectural drawing board. Uh, the real kicker is that we'd actually, again, had another phone call with John and we knew we had to get to this place where we had uh, some indices in, or some tenants in the same index as other tenants, right? We had to get to this point where we had combined indices is what we called them. We had that solution basically ready to rock about a week before this critical incident, everything went bad. So it was a real timing. Uh, timing bummer, but we ended up going with this architecture pattern. So what you see here are a couple of clusters, and inside each cluster is one or two indexes. Uh, for example, index one just has one tenant, index two may have 30. Uh, we really needed to go to this architecture because we do have several enterprise level clients that have far different demands, right? They might have 50, 60 people logging in to, to do rostering during a, a really large tournament. Uh, and they're gonna be write, running a lot of queries and updating data very quickly, and that sort of thing kind of demands its own index. We also have beta customers that are gonna be trying new features, new mappings, new tools built on top of this platform. They're gonna need to be rebuilt more frequently as we're adding and changing mappings around. So you need to have support to still have one index for your larger, your special tenants, but you also need a way for those free trial people to be able to use your application without it costing you too much money. And that's where this combined index thing comes in. So at this point, uh, we, we had the ability to do both um, and, and do both really effectively. Uh, we additionally, in, or in addition to supporting multiple tenants per index, we also developed a blue-green deployment that could move organizations across indices and is across clusters. So if we knew that one cluster was in a bad state or during this incident, right, we were able to roll people off of one unhealthy cluster to a new healthy cluster where writes and everything were, were working and reads were working and they could actually use their data. Um, we're gonna talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
So we did add a third cluster, um, and so we sort of, our goal with adding a third cluster was, was to effectively start clean. Um, and we started this blue-green deployment process of just moving um, some of our largest uh, indexes, or our largest customers off onto their own cluster um, in this new format, and then starting to combine those indices along the way. Um, and then we, when we did that, we you know, massively shrunk the shard count. Um, so you can imagine, the moment you add 1,000 organizations to a single index, uh, you cut down you know, humongous amounts of shards super quick. So what does it look like when you want to build zero downtime re-indexing in a uh, SaaS product with multi-tenancy? What we're looking at here is uh, two different cases on the bottom. We've got a write case and a read case. And on the top is sort of an infrastructure slash architecture diagram. Um, so because we are using a multiple cluster deployment, we had to model our tenant assignment in some place other than Elasticsearch. Um, so at this point, we were no longer really using the index aliasing blueberry indexing. Instead, what we were using was this small table. It has a tenant ID. It has a, the destination index name. It has where the, which cluster this index lives, so the applications know where to go to the cluster to find the index, to find the data. Uh, and it has this Boolean that's called locked. So when we need to rebuild an index or move a customer across uh, clusters or across indices, what we first do is set this Boolean locked to true. At this point, uh, writes are disabled. So we might have writes coming in from seven, eight, nine different applications. Generally, the pattern is to do this in a background job. Uh, at this point, what would happen is the, the SQSQ uh, worker would pick up this message off SQS, try to index some new data, and the API would come back and say, uh-uh, this index is locked, you're gonna have to wait. So we would exponentially back off and retry. Now for a user, they still need to search their data even if it's a few minutes out of sync. So all read operations are still going to this index that we're about to replace. Um, at this next stage, what we're doing here is um, we're, I'm oh, sorry, um, what, what we're doing here is we've kicked off a job that will create a new slot or a new, a new destination for this data. Sometimes it's a brand new index, other times it's an existing index with other tenants in it, and other times again it's a brand new cluster and a brand new index. And that job will go off and it will ping all these other services. It'll say, okay, I need all these people. I need the team's information. I need stats. I need the registration data. It aggregates this at an application level. And then it uses the bulk insert API to insert this data into Elasticsearch. At this point, it's important to remember, writes to the previous index are still disabled. So if data changes, we haven't actually lost anything yet. After that initial job of rebuilding the client's index has been complete, what we do is we update the index alias in the cluster assignments table. Uh, pointing to the new index or the new cluster. Here I've moved uh, tenant one to index five on cluster one. And what I do is I simply unlock the index. So once, once the index is unlocked in this table, all of those writes are able to flush through and process. Uh, and at this time, again, the, uh, the user who's doing reads is now hitting the brand new index with the brand new data, potentially new mappings or new ways to understand their organization. So success. Um, so you know, as you can see, we went through uh, you know four different iterations on, on how to how to actually do this, how to create a product that would be successful. Um, we got to the point where we fully rolled this out to all twenty thousand of our organizations. Um, they're loving this new product that they get. Um, it's it's you know all new features um, and and really providing them that's the customer uh, relationship management thing that they're they're trying to go after. Um, I'm happy because my cluster's not falling over and I'm not getting paged at three in the morning or whatever it is. Uh, I'm happy because yeah. Andy's happy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and we actually ended up, uh, in, so once we got to this state, um, reducing that shard count significantly and, and getting down to just 
50 indices, um, we only needed one cluster. So we have all of this like application logic built in um, that allows us to be able to move things around and re reassign inde indexes and, and you know, combine in two indexes together and all this stuff. We have all these great things built into our application. Um, but now we're on a small cluster um, in, a, in a pretty stable state. Um, we've got 260 million documents into that uh, cluster and, and the data is already at a terabyte and a half and is continuing to grow every day um, every time a new athlete gets registered onto our platform. So let's take a quick look at the architectural recommendations we made over the course of this talk. Uh, the very first one is use more than one index, but don't use too many indices. You need to build this into your application logic so that your application understands that you're going to be moving people around. That's really important. The next thing is make sure you're using static mappings. It's worth the time to understand your data and develop some sort of structured way to represent all of your dynamic data that your customers may be using. If you're scaling your mappings linearly, you're gonna have a bad time. If you're like us and you're scaling it exponentially, the bad time's gonna happen earlier. Um, additionally into that, one, one really great way to do zero downtime reindexing is just to build in application level support for the um, blue-green indexing using uh, aliases. Um, if you do need to support a multiple cluster scenario, which does make things like upgrades and testing new, new features inside of Elasticsearch really easy, uh, you're gonna need to model that elsewhere. Um, finally, definitely leverage the Amazon Elasticsearch service to scale when you need to add write capacity or recapacity. Yeah, exactly. So uh, for, for write capacity, just adding more data nodes will give you more write throughput. Um, for, for read capacity, um, additional replica shards um, just straight up gives you more uh, read throughput. Um, and so the, one of the big recommendations uh, as a distributed systems nerd I, I want to tell you is always use three dedicated master nodes. Um, and the reason for that is, is if, you're, if you're putting your master election on your data nodes, um, any resource utilization problems that are impacting those data nodes could affect your leader election, um, and that's not a good thing. Uh, leader, leader election problems are bad. Um, don't Never use two master nodes, because then they'll both think that they're a master node. Don't do that, that's also bad. Um, and having one is bad, because if it dies, then your cluster is dead. Um, so use three master nodes. Um, consider investing in, in the multi-cluster application support, right? Like, consider what it's like to um, have the flexibility of, okay, we're gonna upgrade to a new version of Elasticsearch. I'm gonna spin up a whole new cluster that is on that new version of Elasticsearch. I'm gonna bring my first demo organization that I wanna test out in production over to that new version and kick the tires, see what works. Are we getting the query performance that we expect? Are we getting all those things? Um, and it's just a super useful tool for being able to uh, experiment and understand the state of your cluster, understand whether you're getting the right value out of it or not. Um, yeah, definitely treat your Amazon Elasticsearch service cluster as you know, cattle, not pets. It's something that we probably take through all the rest of our infrastructure, and it very much applies here. Yeah, yeah I mean, really the power is that you have an API that you can use to create new clusters if you wanted to, right? Um, so you could go, you could go even more uh, uh, we didn't quite get that far. I mean, we're using things like Terraform and CloudFormation to like provision those, that infrastructure, but um, you could go even farther and use your application to provision a whole new cluster if you wanted to. Um, 